Well, good morning, church. Um, what a great joy it is to worship with one another, right? Thanks to Matt and Bethany uh, for coming out and doing that. Matt is one of my oldest, dearest friends, and so I'm thankful to get to worship as he leads us this morning. This morning, we'll be in the Gospel of John, so turn your Bibles to John 1. John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, if you're new to Christianity or God and you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there's blue Bibles over by where you walked in. And if you have one of those with you, John chapter 1 is on page 517. Page 517. I had the great privilege with the youth group over about a year, starting in the fall of 2019, to preach through the Gospel of John. We did it a little bit different than we'll be doing it this morning. We actually went just through chapters. And each chapter showed us something marvelous about Christ. And we went through the Gospel of John, and we had these Jesus statements, is what we called them, that we went through for each chapter. Chapter 1, Jesus is God. Chapter 3, Jesus is Savior. Chapter 10, Jesus is the Good Shepherd, and so forth. And what struck me about the Gospel of John is how much it impresses upon you the glory of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, and how worthy of our praise he is. And I hope that this morning, as we look at just a few verses in the Gospel of John, that you are impressed, that that is impressed upon you as well, that our Savior is deserving of our worship. So again, page 517, let's look to John 1 right now. And and this is the only perfect part of our service. When we read God's inspired, infallible, and inerrant word, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, let's read together John 1, 1 to 18. It says this, In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Praise God for his word and what is revealed to us in it. People and experts often say that first impressions really matter. That the first impression you give someone, someone's first even five seconds of them meeting you can make or break the relationship. It will tell them so much about you uh, that it will be irreversible in their mind. You and I would probably agree with this sometimes, right? You meet people, sometimes they're a little bit underwhelming. Turns out to be that way. Sometimes they come off really strong and they stay that way. Other times, what you see at first doesn't really match up with what you find out later. But what makes a lasting first impression? What makes someone stick in your mind? What keeps a conversation or a relationship going, making you want to know more, to ask more questions of them? John, a disciple of Jesus, Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, wants to make an impression on you. His whole gospel is written for a very specific reason. We find this reason, if you want to turn there, in John 20. John 20, verse 30 and 31. This is what it says. John 20, 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. We see there that John has two, an overarching purpose that is broken down into two distinct purposes. First, an evangelistic, sorry, an apologetic purpose. That you would understand who Jesus is who he claims and shows himself to be. Who is that? Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah who has come to save the world. God incarnate. The second purpose being evangelistic, that when you understand that truth, that fact that your eyes would be opened and that you would trust in him and his work on the cross for salvation, that you would have life in his name. John's gospel wants to impress these things upon you and with such a clear and focused goal it's no surprise that john in opening up his gospel comes off strong he gives a strong first impression this introduction what we read verses 1 to 18 tells us so much of jesus in such a short passage it gives us such a clear picture of who he is and what it is that he came to do. We won't be looking at all of it this morning. It would take us quite some time. We will, though, be specifically looking at John 1, 1 through 5. John 1, 1 through 5. And in John 1, verses 1 through 5, we are called right in line with the clear, pointed message of John's gospel to three things. First, to behold Jesus as God. 
Second, to embrace the life Jesus gives. And third, to experience the light Jesus brings. As we examine these verses, let's let the Word of God produce worship and belief within us. Let's trust what He shows us and continue trusting in Christ. Point one, we need to behold Jesus as God as we look at John 1, 1 through 5. This is the big first impression. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Before we jump into these three verses, verses 1 to 3, let's just pause for a moment because there's a word, which is word here, that maybe you have a question about like I did when I first read the Gospel of John. I thought, before reading any farther, who is the word? I've never seen this before. I've never heard this before. Who might it be? And I'll give you a short answer because we'll talk more and explain more about this answer in a moment. But the word is Jesus Christ, the one who is eternal, the second member of the Godhead who has created all things and died on the cross so that you and I might have life. He's the son of God who has taken on human flesh, the savior of the world. Some of you, though, might not yet be satisfied with that answer. Because you're asking exactly what I asked my youth leader growing up. Why didn't God just say Jesus? Why did he have John write the word? Is he trying to hide something? Doesn't God want us to understand what he's writing to us? And, and that's a fair question if you've never looked at John 1 before and you're looking at it with our 21st century eyes. But John didn't write specifically to our audience in this wrote to first century Christians, to Jews and Gentiles. And they, when they heard the word, would have heard something specific. Because the Greek word, Greek is what your New Testament is written in, a Greek word for the word is logos. Now to the Greeks, logos would have embodied what they were searching for. The ultimate meaning and purpose and power behind all human life in the universe. But to the Greeks and their philosophers, the Logos would have been something impersonal, abstract, much unknown. But that is not who Christ is. And so John uses this word, Logos, to pull something from their mind that they would understand and say, it's not abstract, it's not unknown. This thing you've been looking for is God. And He came in the flesh And he stood before you. He reveals God to you. Now to first century Jewish listeners, they would have heard the word and they would have associated it with divine power, with wisdom. Because they would have thought of all the times in the Old Testament that the word of God acted in power. Genesis 1, God's creating act accomplished by his spoken word. Exodus 24, God gives Israel the Ten Commandments by his word. First Samuel 3, uh, God reveals himself to Samuel in speech, and he reveals scripture to the prophets. We read in Jeremiah 1 and Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 9. There's so many more illustrations in the Old Testament of God acting powerfully by his word. 
So to Jews, John presents, much like he did to the Greeks, the incarnation of divine power and revelation. So John doesn't use this term, logos, the word, to confuse you and I. He uses it so that his first readers would have utmost clarity in their understanding of what he's trying to say about who this is. But the word, understanding that single word that it is, isn't all we see here. And so I want to draw your attention in verses 1 to 3. These are sub-points of this first point. As we behold Jesus as God, we will see him first, the first aspect of his divinity, that he is God. I just said it. As we behold Jesus as God, we see he is God. And as we look at these aspects of Jesus' divinity, sometimes our minds can start to swell because we're presented with this big picture of Christ, this big picture of God, and we start shoving facts in our brains. And sometimes they don't make it down to our heart. This morning, may we see, may we read of Christ and understand who he is, and may it produce worship within us. Don't just write down words on your page, but let them seep into your heart and flow out of your mouth in your life in praise. First thing we see, verse 1, as we behold Jesus' nature, is that we see Jesus as God. We know this first because we know that the word in John 1.14 is said to become flesh. And in verse 1, The word that would become flesh is said to be God. And the word was God. Who is it that is God that has come in the flesh? It's none other than Jesus Christ himself, the God-man. You'll notice there's some repetition here. The word is first said to be with God, then was God, then was with God once more. And it also repeats this phrase, in the beginning, we see at the very beginning. John's not just babbling here. He's not just repeating himself over and over, but he's trying to get across a salient point. He's trying to make his big first impression. He's not leaving any room for you to think that the word, that Jesus Christ, could be anyone other than God, the God of the Bible. And this is really important, and John is emphasizing it because understanding Jesus' deity, the fact that he is indeed the God of the Bible, is is of great importance for you and I, Christians, to grasp. Because if you get God wrong, if you get Jesus wrong, you get the truth of the gospel wrong. For Jesus to be a mere man or anything lesser than God, a mere prophet, For him to be anything other than God himself makes him incapable of living a perfect life on your and I's behalf. Makes him incapable to die on the cross and satisfy the wrath of God. So we must grasp and affirm the deity of Christ. The fact that he is God that we see explicitly portrayed here in John 1. This is in some sense, as basic of a Christian truth as you can find and read of. But it makes all the difference. 
all the difference in the world. As you consider Jesus as God, again, let's worship him for this. As we see two more points about Jesus being God, let it drive you towards worship. We've seen Jesus as God. We're beholding him as that. The second thing of Christ that we need to behold and that's shown to us here is that Jesus is eternal. As God, Jesus is eternal. We mentioned it already, but John is using precise language to make clear points for you and I and for his original readers. A phrase that you might recognize from John 1.1 points back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning. Genesis 1.1 we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Here we read that in the beginning was the word. Again, sparking the mind and the interest of anyone who would have read the Old Testament, John wants you to think back. In the beginning was the Word. Who was there before anything was created? Who was there in the beginning before the universe was created by God? Well, it was God Himself. It was the eternal God who is unchanging. For God to be in the beginning does in fact mean he's eternal because the world was yet to be, the universe was yet to exist. God is not a created being, rather he has always been. He is the Lord of time, existing above and apart from it, free to accomplish it, enter it to accomplish his purposes. Uh, The word, Christ, before there was anything, had been co-equal with God throughout all eternity. He was there with God. Christ's eternality means he has no beginning or end. That he does not change. That his omniscience, the fact that he knows all things, leads him to see all times uh, with equal vividness. Because he is the one who has made them as they are. This is Christ we're speaking of. His eternality means he doesn't experience the frustrations you and I do experience with time. For God, for Christ, time never passes too slowly. For him, time never passes too quickly. And he is in control of all time and space as we know it. Christ's eternality, the fact that he has been always, displays his sovereignty. Because for God and Christ, there is never a limit. He is the Lord of time, and this is true of the world as well that he has made. We're going to consider Jesus as creator in just a moment. But I want you to pause for a second. 2020 has been a weird year. It's been a hard year in many ways. I'm guessing you've struggled at some point with something, large or small, because of the way this year has gone. You're struggling now, or you're still struggling with things from earlier this year, or the effects of how things have gone on. Pause for a moment. Think of Christ as eternal, and and let it be a comfort to your soul. Because for Christ to be eternal means he is unchanging. 
And though your circumstances may change, though they may ebb and flow from hard to easy, from difficult to a walk in the park, God never changes. He is constant. His goodness is constant. If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, the fact that He has saved you and made you new, and that you can find your complete contentment and purpose in Him is constant. It doesn't change. He never fades and He never will. You can trust your powerful and caring and loving Savior always because He will never change. John's trying to make a big impression on us. He's shown us that Jesus is clearly God. He wants us to behold Him as such. He's shown us that Jesus is eternal by the words he uses and he wants us to behold him and praise him and trust him as such. There's one more clarion point that John is trying to make, however. John is showing us and wants us to behold Jesus as God, the creator of all things. In the beginning, pointing back to Genesis 1, but even more clear, read verse 3. This is speaking of Christ. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Not only does John point back to Genesis 1, he clarifies it. He tells us Christ was there. It wasn't just God the Father or God the Spirit working. It was the Trinity accomplishing their purposes together. Christ did creating work in those first days of creation. Creation, an act of God alone, by which for His own glory, He brings everything which was not into existence. Without Him was not anything made that was made, John says of Christ. Understanding Christ as creator helps us to understand and establishes his authority. That he has the right to tell creatures and creation what to do. Think back just a little while. It feels like it's been a while. When we were in Mark 4 and Eric was preaching, Jesus calmed the waves. In John's own gospel, Jesus acts upon and controls creation in many ways. He heals a blind man in John 9, raises Lazarus in John 11, and turns water into wine in John 2. Remember, all these things that Jesus does in the Gospel of John are pointing to the fact that He is God. He is eternal. He is Creator. Christ is even in control of a virus like COVID or any sickness that enters upon your family, or the rain that canceled our Christmas Eve service and hopefully doesn't fall right now. I have to be reminded that Christ is in control of the cold because I had two jackets on before I came up here. I took one off thinking I'd look silly standing up here with two jackets on. But Christ controls all of this because he is creator. He controls his creation. He has authority over it because it is his. But what's amazing is that he didn't just create it, but he created it for a purpose. Colossians 1, 
16 says that he cre- all things were created for him, by him. As you look around at creation, and as you examine yourself, a created being, understand that the purpose of all of this is to bring praise and glory to God. So as you look at the mountains behind me, and you behold them, can you see, I can't see them. This is in the way. I don't know if you can see them because of the clouds. There's just a bit of snow that dusted them the other day after it rained. And if you've ever been here on a Sunday morning after it rains, you look up at these beautiful mountains covered in snow. Don't just look at a picture, but as you see that, praise your Savior. Praise God in Christ who has created all of these things. Praise Him for His goodness everywhere you see it. Colossians 1.17, moving on, even says that in Christ all things are held together. Gives us more of a picture that Christ isn't just creator, but by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3 tells us, everything is upheld, everything is sustained. He upholds all life, he is sovereign over it. When we consider these three aspects of Christ's divinity, the fact that he is God, the fact that he is eternal, and the fact that he is creator, we're given a massive picture of Christ. He wasn't just, and he only isn't a savior, or or a good man, or a prophet. John calls him often in his gospel, the son of God. And as God, he is eternal. He is unchanging. He is all powerful. These ought to push us to praise him. Because this is big stuff. This is big God theology. As you ponder these things, as you contemplate on their reality, they ought to invoke worship in you. So ask yourself, and I'm asking you, when was the last time you stopped and simply praised Christ because he in fact is God? Perhaps you've praised him because he's your savior or you've praised him for other reasons, but have you stopped and praised him for the fact that he is eternal and all that is tied up within that? Have you praised him recently for the fact That he is creator. John doesn't just want you to know this. He wants it to drive you to trust Christ. To praise him. But to simply understand the divinity of Christ is not the full picture. And so John tells us more. Because to truly worship Christ as God comes from embracing the life he gives. We've seen, we've beheld Jesus as God. We're moving on now to verse 4 with our second point where John wants us to embrace the life that Christ, that Jesus gives. Knowing or at least intellectually understanding that Jesus is God should spark even uh, for someone who is a pagan, who is yet to trust Christ, it should spark within them amazement. 
they could acknowledge that fact. But understanding the life Christ gives, knowing him truly and personally, brings forth true worship and love and adoration for Christ. John 1, 4 tells us, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. To speak of life being in the word, in Jesus, first is a statement of of God's self-existence. That in himself is life, that he is self-sustaining. All of creation can be described as becoming. But God is the one that is. Created things change, but God is eternal, permanent, unchanging. He is the one who is being. He's the eternal source of all life, for all that becomes, for all created things. This is what distinguishes the creator from the creation. But while as creator, Jesus is the source of everything and everyone who lives, John's use of life here doesn't just point again to his deity, but it points to the fact that Christ came to bestow eternal life to sinners like you and I. All throughout John's gospel, the term he uses for life here is used to reference eternal life. And this we read in John 1.4 is the life that gives light to all men. This is the sovereign grace of God that is imparted to all who believe savingly in Christ Jesus. This is the life that's given to those who in Ephesians 2.1 are described as dead in their sins and trespasses. And that state of spiritual death, spiritual hopelessness, inability to do anything right on our own is where everyone finds themselves if not in Christ. So how is it that this great God, great Jesus we've read about in verses 1 to 3, eternal, unchanging creator, could save sinners like you and I? How is it that he brings us life? The answer is what we celebrated two days ago. It's the incarnation. It's what John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's astonishing at Christmas time to hear anybody and everyone sing songs of Christ's birth. People who, who haven't even trusted in Christ or, or wouldn't even know who he is will sing joy to the world. But Christmas is more than songs. It, it, it's more than a time for you to wear sweaters or decorate your tree or listen to happy carols with your family. I know some of you really love Christmas music. You play it far too early. Some of you hum it all the year round. But it's bigger than that. It's not just fun, joyful music. Rather, the incarnation is something far greater than any man could conceive or write of. Because in the incarnation, hope was born. In the incarnation, the infinite took on flesh and became finite. The all-powerful creator became dependent on his mother's care. The one who reigns above all, whose glory is unsearchable, was sought after by human kings. 
the eternal God we saw in John 1, 1 to 3, entered into space and time, where month by month, day by day, he experienced the growth, the hardship, the struggle, and the pain that we experience living in a sin-stricken and darkened world. All the while living a perfect life that you and I could never live. Why would the Word become flesh? Why would all-powerful God humble Himself in this way? Why would the Creator enter His creation in such a fashion, being born in a manger? Well, Christ came so that John 1.12 might be true. So that all who receive Him and believe in His name, He would give the right to become and be called children of God. Those who trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross and His resurrection will be saved. Philippians 2, 6-8 puts it this way. Speaking of Christ, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? So that you and I could become children of God. So that we might have this life and this light that Christ brings into the world. If you have yet to trust in Christ, He calls to you today. Because if you want to experience the joy, the life, and the grace He gives, remember John 1.14 called it grace upon grace. If you want to experience that, all you must do is turn from your sin in repentance and turn to Christ, trusting His work in faith. Trusting the fact that he has paid the penalty for your sin. Christ came so that you might have life abundant in him, John 10 tells us. So that you might no longer experience the guilt and the shame and the horror of sin in your life. But that you would, in fact, experience the illuminating, joy-giving, life-bringing light of Christ. This leads us to our final point, final thing that John would hope of you and I. First, that we behold Jesus' nature. Second, that we would experience the life, sorry, embrace the life Jesus brings, gives. And third, that we would experience the light Christ has brought to the world. The life of Jesus and the light of Jesus here are so closely tied to one another. Because as John 1.4 states, in the life of the Word, light is given to men. This is both light shining forth from Christ to be seen, to be experienced also though in one's life. To be beheld and to be known. The light of Christ is that which reveals the glory of God the Father. 
We see this clearly, again, pointing back to John 1.14. Christ reveals the glory of God to us. He reveals, as we read, the grace and truth of God to us. Uh, verse 18, I believe it is, says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. But He, the Word, Christ, has made Him known. He reveals God in the full to us, telling us so much about Him, revealing so much of His good nature to us. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us that this light that reveals the Father is the gospel of the glory of Christ, the message of life that Christ brings to all men. So Jesus' light is something to be seen. It's to show you God in His glory, to show you His truth and His holiness. And He calls you, John does, to see this, to behold it, but also to know and believe it. Because if you've seen this light, if you've been illuminated by it, the light of Christ ought to change you. Because this light of Christ ought to be manifest in you and I. As beneficiaries of the life of Christ, the light of Christ is to shine forth from us, from our lives, meaning that we too, not just Christ, are to display the truth and holiness and glory of God in our lives. We are to live in such a way that He is seen shining forth through us. Because the life that Christ brings through the gospel doesn't just sit dormant within you. It does work. It works within you to change you and transform you by the power of the Spirit and your participation participation more into the image of Christ. Your life, Christian, ought to be reflecting the glory of God. It should be shining forth and through your actions and your words proclaiming His name and truth to a darkened world. This light of Christ also reveals sin and darkness. And it points people continually to the truth of God. This is what we see in the Gospel of John over and over again. That one's gone. Who knew that, Who knew that noise was coming out? Not me. We didn't need that page. Over and over in the Gospel of John, we see Christ interacting with ordinary people. And they expect to have ordinary experiences with him. The woman at the well, John 4, almost wants nothing to do with Jesus. She's a Samaritan. She's surprised Jesus is even talking to her. Jesus, though, approaches her and asks for what? Water. And she's thinking, just water, right? But no, Jesus is shining forth in her light the truth of the gospel. He first exposes her life of sin but then tells her, I am the Messiah. The one your people have been searching for is me. And it seems and appears that she trusts him. John 3 with Nicodemus. 
Jesus is speaking to him, Nicodemus comes to him essentially with a question about what the Pharisees and scribes are saying about him. Jesus turns the question back on Nicodemus. Points to him and says, you must be born again. Pointing to greater spiritual reality, bringing light into the situation. In John 9, the same thing happens, where Jesus speaks to and heals a young blind man. His family and the religious rulers of that day confused, confounded, because they're assuming there's some sin in his life or some error or something his mom and dad did that have brought this sickness on him. Jesus heals him and asks him, Essentially, do you believe that I am the Christ, the Son of God? And he says, I do. Jesus, again, brings light and life into the situation. If you're not in Christ, if you've yet to trust him, if you find yourself in the seat of Nicodemus or the woman at the well, perhaps that blind man, the light burns a bit. Because if you're listening now, and you're hearing pieces of the gospel, you might start to realize and feel your sin bubbling up to the surface. You're realizing that on your own you have no hope. That on your own you can do nothing to save yourself. The light of the gospel is bringing it to bear. If you've trusted in Christ already, you know this feeling. This feeling of despair that comes when the gospel confronts you in the face. You're feeling it for the first time. Don't shrink from it. Don't shrink back, but rather now embrace the life that Christ brings. Experience the goodness of the light. It doesn't just reveal sin, but it lights up that which is dark. It shines forth in a dark world and it shines forth in dark hearts changing them. Because when you've come to the end of yourself, you realize that you have a great need for a Savior. When you realize the great offense your life has been before God, you will realize your need to forsake your past life of sin and to turn to Christ and trust Him for salvation. Trusting that His work on the cross paid the penalty for your sin, that it's finished. And that His resurrection seals the deal, defeating sin and death, so that when you trust in Him, you are given His life because your sin and guilt was placed on Him. You're given His righteousness, His light. So the light might hurt for a moment, but ultimately it brings joy. And this light is for everyone. There's no one who is too far off to be touched by this. Christ came in the world to bring life and to give light to all men. If you know Christ, if you're in relationship with Him, you know the great joy His life and His light brings. How it gives you purpose. How it allows you to worship Him fully. To experience fellowship with God and right relationship with Him. We ought to praise God for this life, for this light.
We ought to praise him for the incarnation of Christ. God becoming flesh so that he might bestow his life to us. One more thing about this light that gives us hope. And we see it in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As we look around at the world that surrounds us, so often we see brokenness. We see discord. We see broken relationships. We see disagreements over silly things. We see relationships shattered. We see the effects of sin in our lives, in our family members' lives. But this verse gives us hope because it tells us that the light shines in the darkness. That the light of the gospel, the light of the life of Christ is shining in this dark world and that it cannot be quenched. It cannot be snuffed out. No effort of Satan can stand against the light of the gospel of Christ. Even Satan's, uh, even Christ's death on the cross, which seemed like Satan's ultimate victory, ended up with victory for Christ. It was his greatest defeat. A small candlestick can light up a dark room. Imagine the light that Christ brings to our lives and to this world. The effect of the light of our divine, eternal, creating Savior. Praise the Lord that we can look around a world full of sin and hopelessness around us and and we can have hope. Because we know that Christ brings light to darkness. We know that he will use us to further his gospel of life and light. So John's gospel in this introduction has sought to make an impression on you. And I hope you have, but it's not just trying to make you think something and be impressed by something. John is trying to elicit a response. Because we aren't meant to just read John 1, 1 1-5, and walk away, but rather we are to be driven to worship. We're to be driven to trust in Christ and to a life that is filled with his light. As you behold Christ is God this week, as you read his word and more of him is revealed to you, and you understand more of his goodness and his greatness, be in awe of him. Stop during moments of your day to praise him and adore him. Grab a friend after church this morning and spend a moment in prayer praising God for who he is, praising Christ for who he is and what he has done. We need to let big truths about God spur us on to praise Him. May they move from our mind to our hearts and to our lives. Let us embrace the life that Christ brings. We should trust Him. If you've already trusted in Christ, may this message of His life and light continue to help you trust Him daily. To remember 
your salvation that he has given. Remember his work on your behalf. And as we experience the light that Christ brings, may it fill us. And may we, like his light that shines forth, be a beacon of light to a lost and dark world who needs to know about this great Jesus Christ who is God and eternal and creator and who needs to know of the life that he brings. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for your word and what you reveal of yourself to us in it. We praise you that in John 1, you show us a glorious picture of Christ, of yourself, and we ask that you would help this drive us to worship and praise, that it would motivate us to continually trust in you and continually tell of the light and life that you've given us. Lord, for those who might feel hopeless this morning, who might be struggling, I ask that the truth of your word would comfort them. That you would help them to remember that you are an eternal and sovereign God who can be trusted, who is unchanging, cannot be shaken by any event in our lives. And I pray that you would help us as we struggle to remember the great joy and life the gospel brings so that we would be motivated to trust you and to live for you daily. In Jesus' name.